You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode 284 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Welcome to the show. We're back from our trip to Pennsylvania, including a few days at Gettysburg. We had a fantastic visit to the battlefield, and we especially enjoyed the time we spent with you folks who came out to meet us and walk Pickett's Charge with us. And we just want to thank everyone who came out for that. It was an amazing experience with a great group of listeners. But now we're back and ready to get back to Vicksburg. As y'all will recall, when we left off last time, it was with a bit of a cliffhanger, with Sherman soldiers at the lower end of the DeSoto Point Canal watching in amazement as a massive warship steamed up the Mississippi and dropped anchor just out of range of the Vicksburg batteries. It was a Union warship, of course, and its arrival meant that David Farragut had returned to Vicksburg. To understand what was behind Farragut's return to Vicksburg, we need to backtrack a bit to the time when Abraham Lincoln had accepted McClernand's proposal to raise an army of Midwesterners and lead it against Vicksburg. Well, shortly after Lincoln approved that plan, he selected Major General Nathaniel P. Banks to replace Benjamin Butler as commander of the Federal's Department of the Gulf. As y'all recall, we've met Banks before on the podcast, most notably in the Shenandoah Valley in the spring of 1862, when Confederate General Stonewall Jackson proved to be Banks' greatest nemesis. Exactly. Banks was a former Speaker of the House of Representatives and a powerful force in the Republican Party. He was the quintessential political general having been appointed to the mind-boggling rank of Major General right from the get-go at the outbreak of the Civil War, despite a complete lack of military training or experience. Not surprisingly, Banks demonstrated serious shortcomings in the field, though he wasn't without ability. And here, he's reappearing on the podcast because he was destined to play a key role in the struggle for control of the Mississippi River. Actually, Lincoln's approval of McClernand's plan and the appointment of Banks to command the Department of the Gulf were connected. 
in that Abraham Lincoln was frustrated by the sluggish pace of events in the West in the summer and fall of 1862. Now Lincoln was hoping that this pair of ambitious politicians in uniform would energize the struggle to open the Mississippi and lead to a breakthrough. But Union General-in-Chief Henry Halleck wasn't so keen on all of this. Halleck preferred his top generals to be West Pointers, and not only was Banks a political general, but his record so far in the war wasn't, um, reassuring. And Halleck's doubts about Banks were magnified by geography. The Department of the Gulf consisted of the southeastern corner of Louisiana and several smaller coastal enclaves in Florida, Mississippi, and Texas. That meant thousands of miles of land and ocean would separate banks from the War Department in Washington, so he would have to show independence and initiative. Remember how Halleck had adroitly maneuvered McClernand out of an independent command, but this was different since Banks was a far more formidable figure. Not only was he politically untouchable, but as one of the more senior generals in the Army, Banks outranked practically everybody, including Ulysses S. Grant. Resigned to making the best of a potentially bad situation, Halleck showered Banks with advice and encouragement. In one of many such letters, Halleck said, quote, The President regards the opening of the Mississippi River as the first and most important of all our military and naval operations, and it is hoped that you will not lose a moment in accomplishing it. Banks reached New Orleans on December 15, 1862, after a voyage down the Atlantic coast and across the Gulf of Mexico. He was followed by a stream of transports bearing much-needed reinforcements for the federal forces already in Louisiana. The last of these reinforcements didn't arrive until February 1863, but Banks lost no time in forming the 25,000 Union troops in Louisiana into the 19th Corps. He divided the Corps into four divisions, commanded by Major General Christopher Auger and Brigadier Generals William Emery, Cuvier Grover, and Thomas Sherman. Although officially the 19th Corps, this force was generally known as the Army of the Gulf. It's safe to say that Nathaniel Banks bore a greater array of responsibilities than any other single Union general. That's because, in addition to serving as commander of the Department of the Gulf, he also was military governor of occupied Louisiana. And if that weren't enough, he was charged by Lincoln with the task of reconstructing that state's civilian government. This meant that, in addition to opening the Mississippi River and maintaining order in Louisiana, Banks was expected to create a new Unionist state government to replace or, more accurately, compete with, the Confederate state government, which had fled from Baton Rouge to Opelousas. Needless to say, this was an extraordinarily complex assignment, one without precedent in American history. While Banks wrestled with everything from banking laws to race relations, 
and struggled to comprehend the complexities of local politics, his inexperienced soldiers, mostly New Yorkers and New Englanders, adjusted as best they could to garrison duty in Louisiana, a land which to them seemed so different and unique as to be a foreign culture. And the mild winter weather gave no hint of the searing heat and suffocating humidity to come, or the subtropical illnesses that would decimate the federal ranks. In fact, the most exciting event that transpired during the winter undoubtedly was the accidental fire that gutted the Gothic Revival State Capitol building in Baton Rouge. During the first three months of 1863, Banks surprised everyone, perhaps even himself, with his accomplishments. He established a reasonably effective and honest civil administration, launched the process of political reconstruction, raised a substantial force of black troops, strengthened defenses throughout the department, and accumulated a stockpile of supplies and munitions for future operations. Despite a steady stream of increasingly strident messages from Halleck urging him to move upriver and cooperate with Grant, who by this time was floundering in the mud around Vicksburg, Banks correctly concentrated on getting his own house in order before marching off into the unknown. When he did turn to the business of opening the Mississippi River, Banks discovered that Union military power in deepest Dixie had its limitations. First of all, because of the need to garrison strong points and maintain order in occupied territory, he could safely put only about two-thirds of his 25,000 troops into the field, and even then he wasn't certain how long he could keep them there. Banks was handicapped because he had only a handful of shallow draft steamboats to use as transports to move soldiers, animals, and supplies through Louisiana's maze of navigable streams and lakes. The vast majority of such craft plying the western rivers were in Union hands, but nearly all of them were up north of Vicksburg, which did Banks no good at all. Federal mobility in this theater of operations was further hampered by a lack of cavalry mounts and draft animals. You see, few horses and mules survived the long sea voyage from the north, and not many could be found in occupied Louisiana, which had been stripped bare of military resources by the Confederates. Nathaniel Banks was no military genius, but he recognized, as his superiors in Washington did not, that he lacked the resources to carry out a sustained campaign against the formidable rebel stronghold of Port Hudson, where the surrounding landscape was similar to that of Vicksburg, that is, not conducive to offensive operations. Here, the low-lying land on the west side of the Mississippi River is a continuation of the alluvial plain that bedeviled Grant 100 miles to the north. The east side of the river is bordered by the familiar line of bluffs, 60 to 80 feet high. Though the topography of Port Hudson isn't as spectacular as that of Vicksburg, the, light, the same yellowish soil erodes in the same irregular fashion, 
producing the same peculiar landscape of ridges, plateaus, and ravines. The small village of Port Hudson no longer exists, but in the mid-1800s, it overlooked a spot where the Mississippi made a sharp bend, a 110-degree curve around a swampy headland called Thompson Point. Port Hudson was the western terminus of an antique short-line railroad that ran to Clinton, a prosperous town 19 miles to the northeast. Unfortunately for the Confederates, 35 miles of dirt roads lay between Clinton and the nearest station on the New Orleans, Jackson, and Great Northern Railroad. That meant, without a rail connection to the east, Port Hudson was largely dependent on a vulnerable waterborne supply line to the west, over to the Trans-Mississippi Confederacy by way of the Red River. The Confederate position at Port Hudson was initially commanded by Brigadier General Daniel Ruggles, who established the first gun batteries overlooking the Mississippi, then by Brigadier General William Beale, who laid out the initial landward fortifications, and finally by Major General Franklin Gardner, who arrived in late December 1862. Gardner had been a classmate of Ulysses S. Grant at West Point and was a veteran of the war with Mexico, Seminole War, and frontier duty. Interestingly, like John Pemberton, the Confederate commander at Vicksburg, Gardner was a Northerner, in his case a New Yorker, who had married a Southern belle and then cast his lot with the Confederacy when war came. Gardner's brother was a Union officer, but his brother-in-law was a Confederate general, and his father-in-law had served as governor of Louisiana, a U.S. senator, and president of the Louisiana Secession Convention. And so in his own way, Gardner was as well-connected politically as McClernand or Banks. Gardner established a demanding schedule of drill and work for the Port Hudson garrison, which varied in size from 12 to 16,000 men during the winter of 1862-63. The place's initial landward defenses were designed only to ward off an attack coming from the direction of Union-occupied Baton Rouge, 16 miles to the south, but then when Banks approached Port Hudson from the opposite direction in the spring of 1863, Gardner extended the defenses around to the east and north. When complete, the semicircular line of earthworks was four and a half miles in length and enclosed the village and the river batteries. The fortifications were less elaborate than those at Vicksburg and consisted primarily of a parapet fronted by a ditch and debatus. The boring daily routine of garrison life was enlivened from time to time by the arrival of distinguished visitors. In March 1863, Lieutenant General Edmund Kirby Smith inspected the defenses at Port Hudson before heading west to assume command of the Department of the Trans-Mississippi from Theophilus Holmes. Smith moved the department headquarters from Little Rock, Arkansas to Alexandria, Louisiana, because of Alexandria's location on the Red River, which by the spring of 1863 had become one of the more important rivers in the Confederacy. A week later, Sterling Price arrived in Port Hudson and announced that he too was on his way west to the Trans-Mississippi. 
to liberate his home state of Missouri from federal oppression. Both Kirby Smith and Price urged Gardner's men to hold Port Hudson and thereby keep open the vital corridor between the two halves of the Confederacy. The presence of so many starry collars in such an obscure place certainly demonstrated that with the Federals under Grant in possession of the shore opposite Vicksburg, Port Hudson was the last secure Confederate crossing point on the Mississippi River. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. While Nathaniel Banks took care of administrative matters in New Orleans and Franklin Gardner dug in at Port Hudson, David Farragut learned of the loss of Queen of the West and Indianola inside the Vicksburg-Port Hudson corridor. Never one to sit idly by while there was work to be done, the Admiral decided to take his warships upriver past Port Hudson and reestablish the blockade of the Red River. Farragut discussed the matter with Banks and pointed out that because Port Hudson was supplied by water, he might be able to isolate the place and compel its garrison to evacuate. Banks would then be able to move upriver and join Grant and commence operations against Vicksburg. Farragut's plan appealed to Banks because it promised a relatively bloodless solution to the vexing problem of Port Hudson. The only difficulty was the matter of running the Federal warships past the Confederate stronghold. But Farragut had done that sort of thing three times before, once at Forts Jackson and St. Philip below New Orleans and twice at Vicksburg, and he was confident of repeating his previous success. But to make success a little more certain, Farragut asked that Banks demonstrate against Port Hudson from the landward side and thus distract the garrison. And so Banks duly set out from Baton Rouge for Port Hudson at the head of 12,000 men, but he failed to take into account that his inexperienced troops were unfamiliar with actual campaigning. 
That meant the march proceeded at a snail's pace and was notable for the mix-ups and confusion that attended it. When the time came for Farragut to make his move, the floundering Federal column was still several miles short of the rebel works at Port Hudson. When Farragut learned of the situation, he grumbled that, quote, Banks had as well be in New Orleans or at Baton Rouge for all the good he is doing us. But Farragut was determined to proceed with or without Banks' assistance. He left the ironclad Essex, the mortar boats, and assorted ocean-going vessels behind to protect New Orleans and Baton Rouge. Farragut intended to take only seven ships past Port Hudson. As usual, he would command in person aboard his flagship, USS Hartford. A few hours after sunset on March 14, 1863, the Federal warships weighed anchor and steamed upriver toward Port Hudson. The Confederates were on full alert, and at 11.22 p.m., a rocket blazed into the sky above Port Hudson, signaling that enemy ships were approaching. Huge bonfires were lit to illuminate the river, and the first of hundreds of large-caliber shells rained down on the Union vessels. A rebel soldier later recalled that, quote, The whole atmosphere appeared to be full of the screaming, exploding, heavy bombs. Hartford and Albatross lashed together for protection and additional horsepower led the way. But if navigating the Mississippi River in a large ocean-going vessel was a tricky proposition in daylight, it was next to impossible when the main channel was obscured by darkness and smoke and the pilots were distracted by thumping explosions, blinding flashes of light, showers of shrapnel and splinters, and shouts and screams. Upon reaching the bend around Thompson Point, Hartford failed to swing to port quickly enough and went aground on the east bank. However, after several heart-stopping moments, the combined engines of the two ships pulled her free. Hartford and Albatross then churned through the bend, hugging the east bank all the way, and emerged from the maelstrom with only minimal damage and casualties. That's because, as it turned out, the Confederate guns up on the bluffs couldn't be depressed sufficiently to fire on targets passing directly under their positions. The rest of the Federal ships fared less well. Richmond and Genesee, also lashed together, were done in when Richmond lost power after a shell tore through her hull and smashed her steam valves. The smaller Genesee was unable to maintain headway against the current. Commander James Alden of Richmond reported, quote, We were, for a few minutes, at the rebels' mercy. Their shells were causing great havoc on our decks. The groans of the wounded and the shrieks of the dying were awful. The decks were covered with blood. Richmond and Genesee swung sharply to port and headed back downriver. This maneuver triggered an unfortunate chain reaction, because by now visibility was severely limited, and Monongahela and Caneo were misled by the sight of the other two ships turning to port. Assuming they were approaching the bend in the river, Monongahela and Caneo turned as well and promptly went aground on Thompson Point. After a desperate struggle punctuated by the crash of shells, the pair managed to pull themselves clear, but the damage had been done. 
Monongahela's overheated engine shut down, with Kaneo unable to push both ships against the current. The crippled pair drifted downriver to safety, following in the wake of Richmond and Genesee. Bringing up the rear was the venerable USS Mississippi, which had been Matthew Perry's flagship during his famous visit to Japan back in 1854. On her quarterdeck now was a promising young lieutenant named George Dewey, who would lead his own squadron to victory half a world away in Manila Bay 35 years after this night of death and terror at Port Hudson. Blindly following Monongahela and Caneo, the huge paddle-wheeler also turned to port prematurely and plowed into the mud of Thompson Point. She soon was burning furiously, and her captain ordered her abandoned. As flames consumed the Mississippi, she floated free and drifted downriver, ablaze from waterline to masttops. There was a spectacular, tremendous explosion when the flames reached Mississippi's magazine. Captain Homer Sprague, a dozen miles away with Banks Force on the far side of Port Hudson, wrote that the blast lit up the night sky, quote, from horizon to horizon with a fiery splendor. The stars sank in an ocean of flame. For ten seconds, the lurid glare filled the sky. Then came a moment of dense blackness. And then a crash so loud and deep that the earth shook for a hundred miles, and it seemed as if all the thunder of the past five hours had been concentrated in one terrific peal. After the explosion, the shattered hull of the old warship disappeared into the river for which she was named. Naval casualties at Port Hudson were more severe than on previous occasions when Federal warships had run past Confederate strong points on the Mississippi. Here, about 75 sailors were killed or wounded. In addition, 37 crewmen from Mississippi were captured. Confederate losses were about 25 men killed, wounded, or missing. Some of the rebel casualties were infantrymen struck by Yankee shells that sailed over the edge of the bluffs and landed far to the east in the Confederate camps and earthworks. For the first time since entering the Mississippi River 11 months earlier, Farragut had failed to make a successful run past an enemy position with the majority of his big ocean-going vessels. Disappointed but not discouraged, he pressed on upriver with only Hartford and Albatross. Rebel steamboats fled in all directions, spreading the dreadful news that Federal warships were once again loose on the Mississippi between Port Hudson and Vicksburg. Farragut dropped anchor off the lower end of the DeSoto Point Canal on March 20th. For the rest of the struggle for the Great River, Ulysses S. Grant and Nathaniel Banks would be in direct, though sometimes tenuous, communication with each other, thanks to the U.S. Navy. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is Vicksburg is the Key, The Struggle for the Mississippi River, by William L. Shea and Terrence J. Winchell. This is the book that gets our vote as the best overview of the entire course of events 
that encompassed the struggle for Vicksburg. Shea is one of our favorite Civil War writers, and Winchell was chief historian at Vicksburg National Military Park. So that's a winning combination, right? Yep, you can't go wrong with this one. So there you go. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations from first to last at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Being off the air for a few weeks means that we have quite a few new members of the Strawfoot Brigade to give a big thank you to, including Roger, Russ, Drew, James, and Michael, Mike, Luke, Christian, Rick, and John, Alex, Stephen, Daryl, Vaughn, Patrick, and Lee. We also want to thank Kathleen and Archie for their recent donations. And we wanted to be sure to mention that Archie's donation was in memory of the first Minnesota at Gettysburg and the second Minnesota at Mill Springs. Very cool. Okay, thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope that you'll join us again next time, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.